1: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
4: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We got a great show in store today. Um, we're going to bookend it with a couple of authors who write uh, literary thrillers with uh, a moral compass. In the third half of our three-hour tour, award-winning Colorado author uh, Amy Rivers. Uh, talks about her new novel, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence. In the middle, the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to find out what really happens inside the FDA from a former FDA director, Richard Williams, talking about his uh, book, Fixing Food, an FDA Insider Unravels the Myths and the Solutions. But first, we're going to... Uh, talk about a uh, new installment of the Christopher Worthy Father Fortis Mysteries from author David Carlson. It's called Like a Thief in the Night and uh, David joins me by phone. Hi David, welcome to the show.
3: Well thank you very much. Tom. It's great to be with you.
4: Um, let me first say that you are, uh, where did I have this in my notes? I um, you are both an award-winning mystery writer and a professor emeritus of religion and philosophy. Um, how far can a priest go when he's invest investigating a mystery? And and how did he, uh, Father Ford, of course, the character in your book, yeah, get, get teamed up with uh, Christopher Worthy?
3: Well, that, that's a that's a that's a great question. Uh, because it's an unusual relationship. Uh, Father Fortas is a Greek Orthodox monk who eats too much and talks too much, according to his abbot. He's a, he's a real extrovert, uh, but he's, he has some really, uh, some qualities that are really helpful in homicide investigation. Uh, he's he's uh, one of those few types that when he's talking to people, he's also listening to them. Uh, and, and, and reading them. Uh, and he's, he's matched up with, um, Christopher Worthy, whose, uh, pedigree is a little bit like mine, uh, son of a minister. Uh, the difference for, is that Christopher Worthy has had a number of tragedies in his life, uh, and lost his family, uh, lost his marriage, almost lost his job, and lost his faith completely. So, uh, uh, it's not, likely that the two would have uh, uh, matched up together but there was a uh, a killing near the monastery where uh, Father Fortis serves in Ohio and uh, where he was uh, the investigating homicide detective and in that experience uh, he, he finds that uh, Father Nick is what we call him. Father Nick is, uh, has some real gifts and abilities to uh, to understand the but not just the mind of a killer but also the sorrow of a killer uh... he's, he's uh... He, he really probes the fact that nobody nobody wakes up one morning and says well very few people i think i want to grow up and be a killer uh... that you know something happened in, in a person's life uh... and they start down a path and and unfortunately it, it takes them to darker and darker paths so They've been uh, teamed up now in my series for over a decade. Um, I feel like I've known them for a long time. Uh, I, I, I honestly say, I, they're they're a lot smarter than I am. That, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't. I, uh, I I've learned a lot from my characters.
4: I usually ask this uh, a little later um, in the conversation, but. When you say that, when you say they're smarter than you are, I always wonder if the characters that writers create for their stories, if they end up revealing things about themselves even to the writer, if there are surprises along the way.
3: Oh, you are absolutely right. And to to be honest with you, that's what I think writers are, uh, particularly uh, fiction writers, are, are are addicted to, and that is, the the characters uh, have uh, minds of their own. They often uh, uh, want to go right when the the writer thinks we're we're going left, um, and uh, I I rarely use the word create that I've created these uh, uh, characters. It's almost like it's almost like. Uh, I've discovered them. I, I've come across them. Um, they became uh, they become very very free agents uh, on, in a mystery. Uh, and I sometimes say that uh, I don't feel so much that I write my mysteries as I'm the first reader of my mysteries, just reading very slowly uh, and let my characters uh, you know take the take the story where it needs to go. Uh, so this is the one. I'm uh, like a thief in the night. is is the sixth in the series, and I would say, from the third uh, one on, and I have a couple more in the in the pipeline. Uh, I start the mystery, uh, and I just have a, a situation. I don't know how the mystery is going to be solved. Uh, sometimes I don't know who the killer is, but what I do know is I I know these characters are, and and we know each other, and I trust them. And so uh, uh, many times uh, I'll go to bed at night and say, I have no idea what's going to happen next in this mystery. And in <laughs> the next day, or, next day or two, I wake up and go, oh, it's going to go in that direction. Or, that, that's really interesting. Or that, that's unexpected. Uh, sometimes I'll wake up and the characters will have said, uh, no, you're going to have to redo that last scene. That's not what, I'm, that's not what I want to do here. So you're right, yeah, they, 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 they become sort of active uh, agents in my mind, uh, and uh, Father particularly is particularly has some uh, spiritual wisdom that has really been helpful to me. Uh, I just didn't see it coming. And, I, and also, because I work with college students for four decades, um, to work with Christopher Worthy, a person who's lost everything, including his, his faith. Uh, I, I wanted to be fair to the idea that losing your faith if you have a r- religious background is as complicated as having faith. You just don't turn it off like a switch. Uh, he has a lot of religious language and insights in his bones. It just is, isn't working for him uh, anymore. And uh, that that's, for me, uh, that, that's been true of students that I've worked with over the years, some of just i can't i can't believe anymore uh and and so he's he carries uh he carries that as kind of a wound um he's not a happy uh, agnostic uh, <laughs> but, but it, you know it's just it's just what what happened to him and and it all collapsed um, and father Fotus is not the type of religious person to intrude on that he's not trying to save worthy or change his soul he he, uh, he just cares about him uh, and they have a deep friendship uh even though there's that wound in in worthy's life i
4: i want to get to some of the elements of the story but you just answered a question i think that i ask a lot of writers about um the the writing process if you are
3: mm-hmm.
4: if you write to a a an outline. If you're really disciplined in that way, or if you sort of binge write, and the story almost tells itself. And I think you you kind of touched on that already, but maybe you could explore it a little further.
3: You're absolutely right on the second one. Um, people, sometimes <clears throat> they'll ask me about my my writing process, <clears throat> and I'll say, "Well, I'm not. I don't smoke, but I do know a little bit about nicotine addiction." And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to nicotine, you're kind of always looking for the opportunity to step out and have another smoke. And I carry pieces of paper in my pocket at all times. Um, I have paper and pen by my bedside. Uh, and that is, uh, I, I don't have that kind of getting up at a certain time and, and writing to a certain point. I, I write like a nicotine addict spoke. <laughs> I, I take advantage of, of spare moments. Uh, if I'm in a boring meeting, uh, I I drift off into one of my mysteries that I'm writing. <clears throat> if uh, uh, if I have a if I'm if I'm starting to go to sleep and my mind sort of clears and a new idea comes, I'm turning on the light, <laughs> writing it down because I know in the morning if I don't, I will have forgotten it. Uh, so yeah, I try to I try to listen to. Uh, what's going on, what, what part of my brain is sort of want, like a reader. I wonder what this, where this mystery is going to go. I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen next. That I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, just be uh, awake for that uh, whenever uh, little clues come. Sometimes it comes with a word. Sometimes it comes with a whole new scene. Uh, occasionally uh, it comes with a, a whole new character that comes into the story that i that i didn't didn 't see coming, and i'll give you an example of that uh, the mystery that came up before this uh, the the fifth one in the series, wrapped in darkness it's set in uh, Michigan's upper peninsula, uh, on the shores of Lake Superior at, at a monastery a, f- a fictitious monastery up there and i 'm writing this mystery and i and all of a sudden i this this character comes in and he 's a hermit. He's a hermit monk. He lives alone out in the uh, woods there, away from the monastery. And the image comes, before I understand what it means, and that is he's got a rope tied around his ankle that ties him to his own hermitage. And I saw this character, and he came into the story, and I was just curious as to why would someone tie themselves to a place, uh, particularly such a remote place? Uh, what's going on there? And uh, so I just became really intrigued with that character, and uh, he proved to be very important in that particular mystery. Yeah, you're right. So I, I just write when whenever the ideas come.
4: Well, and and uh, as you described. You know, jumping out of bed and turning the light on and jotting down notes. Yeah. A friend of mine has, a songwriter friend of mine in Nashville has a similar process, and he refers to the collection of those things as his boneyard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, he that's, pul- that's cool. pulls those things out occasionally when he has time to, to really focus and write, and, and he fleshes those ideas out to see if there's anything there.
3: I, that's, that's a great image, yeah, uh, um, because it, it's almost like, I think, for the songwriter you're talking about and for a lot of writers, and that is um, part of our brain, if we start, let's say, start a, a novel, and and, and uh, part of what we're doing is just part of that brain is trying to figure out, well, what's next? what What's going to happen next? And, and so these ideas come, and sometimes, to be honest with you, in the morning I wake up and I go, well that's just pretty pretty much garbage uh, but, but some other times I wake up and go man that where did, that's amazing that's that's a real that's a real shift or you know i i didn't see that one coming and and, it, and it's just very fruitful so um yeah it it, it that's yeah my my um, i i know about writers who who write from this minute to this minute and if they're in the middle of a sentence and they leave to that they stop, uh, that would not be me.
4: David, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes because I want to talk some more about the story. All right, thank you. All right, my guest is David uh, Carlson, and we'll be back with more right after this.
3: Hello, out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger, T I Double Gur, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
0: Joe Vi from the Blue Line,
1: Dan Sterling.
3: Congressman Dan Kildee, Alexander Zondrick. actor, comedian Jonah Podi, Woodrow Stanley, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow,
0: State
4: Senator Jim Ananik, comedian Brian McCree,
2: unknown comic,
4: Mark Farner, and Tom. I want you to know, Tom's my friend.
3: You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview all.
5: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a new uh, Christopher-worthy Father Fortis mystery called Like a Thief in the Night by David Carlson. David joins me by phone. David, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that.
3: Oh, no, no. I'm fascinated. I, uh, I... I haven't been to Flint particularly, but when uh, uh, the mystery I just completed that's coming out next year is set in and starts in Saginaw, and so um, and then another mystery is set in Detroit. So, so Michigan is uh, is is a world that I, I know a little bit about, particularly the UP. But that uh, it's good to be with you. And actually, I read on your website that you were a drummer behind Dale Shannon. Indeed. And that has me thinking or hearing in the, in the back of my mind, uh, run away all morning. So,
4: <laughs> and and you, I don't know if you knew this, but Dal Shannon was from Michigan.
3: I did not know that.
4: Over in the Thumb, uh, actually oh, okay. near near Port Huron. But okay. um, but speaking of geography, how's that for yeah. a segue? I um, bet <laughs> the book, um, like a thief in the night. Uh, kicks off with a drone attack in St. Peter's Square that nearly kills the Pope and starts Christopher Worthy, uh, the detective, and Father Fortas um, on, a, on a journey uh, from the heart of Rome to the holiest sites in Jerusalem. And I'm going to come at this a little bit sideways and say, How does Detective Worthy get around jurisdictional issues?
3: Well, you know, uh, it's one of those cases where uh, uh, church politics kind of uh, 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 overrules. That is, um, in one of the previous mysteries, um, he helped solve uh, a very uh, dark mystery set in Detroit, where an elderly priest is found strangled in front of the altar one, one Tuesday morning. And he, uh, uh, he helps solve that mystery, and it, it, uh, he, it uh, earns him, a, he solves it with uh, Father Nick, uh, and uh, the hierarchy uh, of the Orthodox Church uh, is, so, is very grateful to him. And uh, that particular hierarch, uh, the, um, the Bishop Metropolitan of Detroit, this fictional guy, uh, then has moved on and, and become um, the, the, uh, a, the ecumenical patriarch, which is the top post in the Orthodox Church. And that drone attack that begins this mystery is on a feast day in Rome that I've actually been at several times, when the Pope and the Ecumenical Patriarch, or the Catholic leader and the Orthodox leader, are together on June 29th, uh, or or representative of the, of both of them is there on that day, and they're and they're together at, at St. Peter's. Uh, this happens to be uh, in in that setting where where I was um, many years ago uh, to see to see that happen, where the two um, are, are are together in a service. Uh, and it's, it's an opportunity for uh, embracing and uh, offering each side well wishes, but also uh, trying to kind of heal the breach that's gone on between those two churches for almost a 1,000 years. So <clears throat> the patriarch is also at that uh, uh, drone attack, and uh, we don't know when the story opens if, if the, 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 the assassin is trying to kill the pope the Ecumenical Patriarch, or both of them. So uh, the Ecumenical Patriarch, then, remembering uh, what worthy had done in this previous mystery, uh, uses uh, his clout and 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 the power of the of the Pope to uh, bring worthy in almost like a, a consultant. Uh, but it's really interesting in this mystery because worthy comes from a, his his dad is a Baptist minister. And so he's just he's just he's lost in the politics of of what's going on in 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 these in this church in this church world, uh, and it's really uh, Father Nick, who is a friend of, of the the Ecumenical Patriarch, who uh, who kind of uh, helps grease the wheel uh, to um, to bring uh, worthy to Rome to work with the police. Uh, but mainly to work with um, with Father Nick, I'm trying to figure out if what would be the religious motive behind an assassin who would want to uh, kill kill these two figures? Uh, and you know, what kind of person is this about? Uh, is this is this a a theologically trained assassin? What would that be like? Uh, because it it doesn't look random, and and it's it, as you can imagine. Uh, it takes a lot of planning if someone were to use a drone to uh, to create an explosion in St. Peter's Square. You have to have a lot of tech support but also a lot of uh, people involved in such a thing. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, Willie's kind of uh, brought in like a, 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 a card in the deck that hadn't been there before. Um, but the uh, both the Pope and the, and the Ecumenical Patriarch, uh, despite the fact that Worthy often doesn't know the ins and outs of the politics, uh, he, he has some real gifts of insight into what might be behind something like this and tracking down um, tracking down who might be involved. Uh, Worthy's t- uh, style is, or, or his technique is, uh, as the case goes on, and this has not always served him well, he, um, he becomes more uh, uh, in, introverted, more cut off. He goes more into himself to try to get into the mind of someone who would do this. He, he's, he's searching for that motive uh, and searching for uh, what might have happened in the lives of the victims in the weeks and months before that would have uh, attracted uh, a killer to them. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't pretend to to say that I talked with the Rome Police <laughs> Department and asked how this would happen, but it it, it works in the story from because of the the previous experience that the the ecumenical patriarch had with had with worthy.
4: You're hinting that there might be more to the motive than just a a terrorist attack targeted right. on high profile people.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you're right uh, that, that, is, uh, that really is the big question of the first part of uh, I say the first half of, of the mystery and that is uh, because the killer the assassin does not seek any publicity afterwards for this attempt or uh, not to get away but if, uh, let's say other attempts that might happen in the, so he's not, he's not saying I'm from this group and here's why I'm doing it um, this particular killer is completely silent uh, and is, uh, therefore, you know, how do you track down someone who, who's able to do this but doesn't take any credit for it uh, and doesn't reveal the motive like we might have with a more traditional terrorist? Um, and so that that is uh, something that, that intrigued me, uh, was to have a... Um, protagonist or a villain in this case who uh, is not doing this for any ego reasons or for any cause that is obvious on the surface. And so that's that's what Worthy and Father Nick are, are working on along with the the police drone, that is, you know, why why these two leaders, why now in in this um, imagined future uh, and so it's the, the future. The story sort of set in, in over oh, the next ten years or fifteen years or so, uh, not specific, uh, but with a, a fictional pope uh, uh, and a fictional ecumenical patriarch. Uh, and so they're just they're struggling to understand, you know, who's behind this. You know, could it be someone who's within the church hierarchy? Could it be? It, it doesn't seem to be some traditional terrorist group that hates Christianity. Uh, so you now, what's going on? And that—that and that I hope is also intriguing to the reader.
4: David, you've written both fiction and nonfiction. Which is tougher: doing, um, trying not to embellish or fill in the gaps in nonfiction, or making fiction seem plausible?
3: wow um when i yeah this this is a great question i uh the fic the nonfiction that I write uh is interview based uh, so the first nonfiction uh peace be with you monastic wisdom for a terraphi world that came out in twenty eleven uh was the record of interviews that I did with monks and nuns across the country uh looking back on 9-11 and what we could have learned that we, we missed from a spiritual point of view. Um, so in a way, because I do interview based nonfiction, it's like discovering characters. Uh. So, uh, I, I remember, uh, I was doing some interviews in, uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe area, uh, for that particular book and uh i was at a uh, a particular location where right up i lined up an interview uh and it was a, it was a group uh in uh, albuquerque and i asked the person i was interviewing i said uh, is there anybody else that works here that you think would be important for me to interview and and he said well, i think you ought to uh interview the, this w- this woman who so it was a Catholic organization, but the woman was working part-time for him and she was a Mennonite minister. And so I, I went to, I said, is there any chance I could interview you? I'm only here for a day. Uh, and my, my plane's leaving tomorrow. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Uh, and I, I said, well, um, I was told that you would be a great interview. she says, "I, I know I'm, just, I'm too busy." And I said, "Well, it's eleven o'clock. Do you ever go to lunch?" <laughs> and she said, "You really don't give up, do you?" And <laughs> uh, but it, but it was like it was discovering this character, and so I took her to lunch. We went to a uh Southwestern Mexican restaurant, and they put us at a table right by the <laughs> right by the uh, kitchen. And The noise of the kitchen was so great. I had two tape recorders running, and what what she helped me see through that interview was just golden. And so it, you know, in a way, Tom, it's to discover her was a little bit like what I said earlier. When a character comes into my fiction, and you didn't see them coming. Uh, that what I love about interview based books is I, I don't. I don't know what my interviewee is gonna say. I mean, I have the questions, but uh, like you're doing now, you know, you're asking questions, you, you couldn't have predicted how, how I was gonna answer them for this program. Uh, but I, I'm, I think I'm almost in the same mindset as I'm if, I'm, if I'm listening to my characters in my fiction, it's a lot like listening to my interview subjects in my nonfiction. Uh, and it has that same element of surprise of, oh, I didn't see that coming, or, oh my gosh, I've never thought about that before. So, uh, it, and I'm sure if you, if someone did a, a, a scan of my brain that the same things that are firing off in nonfiction <laughs> when a character does <laughs> something uh, unexpected, it's the same thing firing off in my brain when somebody in an interview says something, and I go, whoa. And I'm just so grateful I had the tape recorders running because, wow. Yeah, I, I, and then, uh, much like the processes uh, with these interviews that I do for the nonfiction, I'll, I'll wait a while, I'll transcribe those, I'll listen to them over and over again, and I'll let that, let that person that I interviewed, in a sense, interview me uh, by listening to what they say. In a similar way, when I revise my fiction, when I go back and I see... And it seems, let's say, that uh, I have a scene which Father Nick, who's really a, a great character, let's say he comes across a little flat. And I'll, I'll I'll let that scene play in my mind and go, well, I don't think, you know, what, what does Father Forest really want to do here? What does Father Nick want to do here? And so I'll, I'll, I'll revise it and often be quite surprised. So I think I, you know, it, it, it's closer as to what's happening for me, in, in both fiction and nonfiction.
4: The title, Like a Thief in the Night, is is kind of a... Well, it's, it's a phrase that has become part of the contemporary lexicon. But what yeah. are its Bible roots?
3: Yeah, its, it's biblical roots, and um, so uh, in my fictional series with, with the two characters, every title is a uh, phrase from the Bible. So uh, if you would look back at all those, enter by the narrow gate, uh, let the dead bury the dead, uh, uh, let these bones live again, um, wrapped in darkness in the clutches of the wicked, uh, and now in the Thief of the Night, they're all biblical references that uh, I think some have a little bit of a familiarity, particularly for people who grew up sort of going to Sunday school, um, but also have like a double meaning for a mystery. That actually comes from uh, a comment that Jesus made and then St. Paul makes uh, in the New Testament about uh, being ready for when uh, Christ would come back. Uh, you come back like a thief in the night, that is when you don't expect it. So it's this phrase about uh, being ready uh, and uh, because you never know when something's gonna happen. So, like a thief in the night, um, is, is a little bit then, like, uh, very easy to transfer that over to a mystery. And that is, you don't know when a, you know, a killer doesn't make an appointment He'd <laughs> say, uh, I'll be there at seven o'clock tomorrow night, uh, be ready for me. And that is, uh, you have to be, have to be ready. And it, it actually has a, a, I don't want to give too much away, but it has a, a, a a sort of third level meaning for this particular mystery um, that um, is, so uh, I think as readers would finish the book, they would look at that title and go, it, it wasn't just a, uh, let's say a, a, a clever biblical reference, but it, there's actually a hidden key to the mystery that's in that title. So I hope that's kind of a teaser.
4: Excellent. Um. You mentioned uh, earlier in the previous segment that you have a couple more uh, worthy Fortis mysteries uh, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. works, and this one is number six in the series. Did you know at the end of the first book that it was going to be a series, or did you get to the end of the book and go, but wait, there's more?
3: Uh, well, uh I, I, so I started writing this. It took uh, So I have a literary agent, and, and so she was interested in, in after I'd written the first one, uh, and she said she'd represent it. And uh, <clears throat> in, in the meantime, then I had written the first nonfiction uh, piece, Be With You. And uh, so she called me. Uh, at, well, actually, no, me back up. So I'd written the one, and uh, a couple of years later I thought, I really miss worthy and father nick I'd, I'd like to be with him again so the first one hadn't sold right and i read a second one and it was so much fun to be with him and then a couple of years later i thought i want to go back and be with him again even though it was by non-fiction that was selling so i went back and, and wrote a third and i thought well if they never sell, they'll be for my grandkids. (laughs) Grandpa wrote these. And uh, so my agent called me and said, I I have good news. And I thought she was going to tell me that uh, my second nonfiction, which I just finished, had had, uh, been picked up by a publisher. And she said, "Uh, no, I have good news. This publisher from Seattle is interested in publishing your three mysteries. And I went, what? (laughs) And... uh, She said, "And I hate to admit this, David, but I can't remember the name of your second one." And I said, "Sarah, I can't remember the name of it either. It's been so (laughs) so long ago." And of course, it was on my computer. Uh, So when when those three were picked up by Coffee Town, you you can you can understand it was like Father Fortis and Nick came to me and said, "Hey." People want to read about us, you know. Let's do some more. So, we t- we uh, told
4: you, David. <laughs>
3: yeah, and uh, and so uh, I wrote a fourth one, and then a uh, and I wrote this one next, but it was just it was just too big uh, a book in terms of the scope. Is you know Rome and Jerusalem the big sites like this. This is a lot different than my two characters solving a mystery at a remote setting up in. Out, out in New Mexico or, or, or uh, Upper Peninsula. So um, the sixth one actually was written uh, sort of at, at, the pace, at the time of the fifth, but then I wrote another one to put in, 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 the, in the, to precede it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just lost track of my question here, uh, what you're asking me, but um, yeah, I repeat it again and I'll pick, get beyond the senior moment.
4: Oh no! Just about getting to the end of a of a book and, and oh, deciding yeah, yeah, there's more to yeah. this, and it becomes a series rather than starting out saying I'm launching a series. Which I've talked to a lot of writers who do, um, you know, start. Yeah, out, I didn't. You know, they literally promote the first book as the first in a series.
3: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have I, because because I wasn't sure if they were ever going to sell. I sort of have written them in. Um, uh, blocks of three, so the first three were picked up, and then Coffee Town was interested in the next three, uh, and then I just signed a contract for three more. Uh, one of them's done, uh, one of them is I'm was working on just before we called, uh, and uh, then a, a a ninth a ninth one that will be coming out, and then Willby um, uh, has a, a daughter in the series who's. Uh, uh, really hard on him because she she blames him for the divorce of her parents uh and so she's sort of the backstory. and she ends up then uh, there's a spin-off series that i had begun in which she is the the sleuth then she's um graduated from college and, and has gone into the fbi uh so uh i i didn't know there would be a series and then uh, actually um, my, my publisher said to me one time uh, how many of these do you think there's going to be and I said oh gee I, I don't know I mean I just I enjoy being with these characters and she said no I'm just curious because a lot of people that write a series uh, they sort of after number five for some reason they sort of decide oh there's more or there's not and um uh, so I, when I wrote this one, uh, like a thief in the night, the publisher said, "Well, this is such a big book in terms of its scope. Is this sort of your last one?" And I said, "You know, I don't think so, because I got a couple more ideas." She said, "Oh, that's great." Um, so uh, you know, there's there's a trick that I to this whole business of writing a series with the same two characters, and then that is. I think of it as trying to drive a car between two guardrails. Uh, <laughs> on, on the one guardrail is uh, is the guard... You, you, you want to you have the characters so they don't fall off the cliff in terms of being boring. That is that they never change. Hey, uh, David...
4: Um, We're almost out of time because I have to go to a break here. Yep. Um, But can you stick around for a few minutes and we'll wrap it up proper on the other side oh, of the break? Uh,
3: I love it. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Tom.
4: All right. My guest is David Carlson. He's the author of Like a Thief in the Night, a Christopher-worthy Father Fortis mystery. It's the sixth In the series, which promises to be at least nine, as we just heard. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Joe by from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
0: Start your weekend early with
4: Sumner program every Friday live at eleven. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood.
0: Hi, this is Greg Nagy.
3: Hey, this is Harper. Hi, this
4: is Joe By from the
3: Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonzik. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis.
1: Hi, this is Rochelle Ray.
3: Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office.
1: I'm Gwen Pennyman Hempel. do not Start
0: your weekend right.
4: Go to eleven Fridays on the Tom Sumner program.
2: Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread
3: the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean to wash them regularly and always before meals with Lifebuoy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself
0: A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. W.H.
4: Wisecarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Wisecarver, a former National Security Advisor and Counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit WHWiseCarver.com. The Tom Sumner
2: Program.com
4: is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we go into overtime with uh, author David uh, Carlson. Uh, his book, um, Like a Thief in the Night, is the sixth in the Christopher Worthy Father Fortis Mystery Series. And uh, he joins me by phone. Welcome back, David. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, thank you. I'm having such a good time talking with you. The time is just flying by. Um, You mentioned, we talked about this briefly in the last segment, about the difference between the fiction and nonfiction that you write. Um, But I asked you a little bit about, uh, you know, how you... Treat nonfiction, and and how you are able to put nonfiction together in in such a way that it seems credible and believable. And you also mentioned the politics of, of the church, and I assume you meant the Catholic Church. Um, I want to talk about how how you're able to. Um, is it is it difficult to to research and get the answers to questions you need to to um make the stories uh true to life
3: yeah uh it's a really good good question um so i have you know prior to this mystery, i had i had written uh, uh various articles on on something called catholic orthodox relations so um i had I had an interest in this area. Uh, I There was a, an event that happened in, way back in 2000 uh, that uh, where Pope John Paul II had had given a ancient church in Rome to the Greek Orthodox community of the city. Uh, and I was just really, I, I, I saw this online and I thought, oh, this is a great story. I can't wait to have, that somebody will write it, write this up and, and explain more. And I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. And so um, uh, I asked my college, I said, I have this project. I, I, want, I want to go to Rome. I, I've, I've talked to some people there. I want to cover this story uh, for a magazine article. Uh, and so I I, uh, I went to Rome to this ancient church that was pretty bad shape, but it, it was symbolically so interesting that the the catholic church would give an ancient church in rome to the orthodox community and i realized that 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 was a pope who was very interested in trying to move uh, <clears throat> the conversations between the two churches see for the first thousand years in the church's life the orthodox and the catholic church were in the same same church that they were actually called the catholic orthodox church and then they split apart uh, and so that, you know, Pope John Paul was interested in in reconciliation of the two, uh, and and I was interested in that. Uh, that seemed really—I am an Orthodox Christian, and that was very interesting to me. So I went to Rome. I, I, I did a story on that. Uh, I went back and, and did another story on that, and then they invited me back uh, for the uh, celebration when the church was— uh, Technical term was reconsecrated as an Orthodox Church, and that brought me to Rome to sit in St. Peter's Square with the Pope John Paul II and Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew sitting underneath this canopy, and that's 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 the scene that becomes the first the the first scene in this mystery, uh, like a thief in the night, where they're sitting underneath this canopy, and this this, this drone comes into the St. Peter's Square and kind of hovers there, and then and then uh, races toward this canopy, and and, uh, a bomb is detonated. Uh, So, uh, so I, I, but I had also had uh, over twenty years of teaching church history uh, at the college where where I I spent my career, and so uh, I, I I I knew I had a lot of insider information about. Um, both the the Catholic Church and also the Orthodox Church uh w- puzzling around the idea was that separation a thousand years ago was that a divorce that can never be healed, or was that a marital separation that even after a thousand years can 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 be healed and so I was really intrigued with that question, and that uh, that going to see that ancient church being uh, restored and then given to the Orthodox community just really set me off thinking about what this would be like. And, and about that time, I read that the, the current ecumenical patriarch, who's obviously Greek, uh, had done his doctoral work when he was younger in Rome. And I thought, well, this would be fascinating. Imagine a future pope and a future ecumenical patriarch being grad students together 25 years before and knowing each other, and then each of them ending up at the top position of their church, seeing one another then 25 years later, and in that moment having somebody try to kill them. So a a lot of thoughts came together, uh, and I thought this, this would allow me not only to write what i hope would be a really fascinating mystery but also to look into this issue of why these two churches who at one time were, were united and now for a thousand years have been apart what what might these two guys who knew each other 25 years ago what might they be doing to you know bring their communities closer together realizing that there's a lot of people within those two churches that don't want anything to do with each other. So it, just, it, was, just, it was just such an intriguing, uh, uh, not only setting, but, but also the, the situation. I thought, I, I think I have the background, and I, I have written in this area before, to take some academic work that I've done and have it be the basis of, of a mystery so yeah, that's a long answer to your question, but uh, yeah, I, a lot of the research from what you're saying was actually done over twenty-five, thirty years without me knowing there'd be a mystery at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was just the research I did to be a to be a teacher, uh, and to help my students understand, uh, you know, a really diff- some difficult issues. And that's, you know, Tom, that's always what I've said about myself when people say. Asked me, I say, well, how would I describe myself? I say, look, I'm not the I'm not the brightest guy theologically in the room, but I'm one of the best guys in the room to help you understand difficult concepts because I can make them more understandable. And so that's what I'm trying to do in this mystery, is to take something that maybe a lot of people have never thought about, and as I didn't know those two churches were once together. Uh, and uh, to try to take something like that and, and help a, just a, a lay layperson uh, uh, go, wow, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, and that's kind of an interesting possibility. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping, always hoping in my, in my mysteries that people will not only be interested in who killed, who killed whom, but also they'll learn something about monastic life or about life within a church or um, uh, in this case uh, life on uh, at the, on a big stage in terms of, of church politics
4: the fact that that these uh, that father Fortas or father Nick as you call him in the books mm-hmm. um, is a monk um, does that mean that these stories also have, a moral, either by your design or by his?
3: Yeah, uh, I, uh, initially I just wanted to write a good mystery <laughs> and, I did, and I didn't think of uh, I, I didn't think of Father Nick carrying any moral responsibility or being the moral compass um, but you know as we talked about earlier in the interview It's like as I got to know him better and and he showed more of himself to me, uh, I I realized that um, this is uh, this would be kind of a clergy person, a priest, a minister that I would like to know. Um, Well, David, he's not not perfect, but he has flaws, but um, he, he is not an ego driven man. Well, David,
4: Uh, we have to end there. I'm having so much fun talking with you, and the time has just flown by. Um, The name of the book is Like a Thief in the Night, a Christopher Worthy and Father Fortis Mystery. It's the sixth in the series by David Carlson, my guest. David, I always give guests a chance to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
3: I do. Uh, www.DavidCCarlson.com uh net or dot org they both end up the same place uh yeah they can find me there uh also on facebook uh, david carlson uh, david carlson author well so david thanks, thanks, really so tr- thanks, thanks so much thanks so much
4: and keep up the good work
3: uh, thanks so much tom best wishes to you and your and your listeners all right take care
0: Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan,
4: that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan near Pinkney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable Armchair Politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair Politics is going to hell, and you can too.